Um, one of the things that struck me about the song, it's a great song, one of the things that struck me about it is it's missing something. And I want to bring to bear something that is missing out of the song. No offense. It's a good song. The chorus is, I, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God just as I am. It's really important that we understand when we sing that chorus that the idea is the, uh, um, the last line Uh, last two lines, and I'm welcomed with open arms, praise God, just as I am, implies something. And what it implies is this, that we recognize by the Spirit that we're broken, wounded, desperate, empty, guilty. Does that make sense? That is the just as I am that's being referenced. It's not being referenced anything other than The Spirit has broken my heart, has convicted of me of sin, has given me a new heart so that I can repent and believe. The reason why I point that out is because there's a big idea in Christianity today that God accepts you just as you are, and that's not true. Just as I am is in rebellion to Him. He changes us and He accepts that changed one that He continues to change. Does that make sense? Radically different from how we typically understand it today. Radically different. So I appreciate the song. I just want to clarify that statement. Very important. This idea that, you know, come as you are, it's okay. No. (laughs) Rebellion is never okay. We come as the first part of each one of those lines. Broken, wounded, desperate, empty, and guilty. And we recognize that. That's how he accepts us. Right? Big difference. Anyway, real quick update. Some of you probably saw the email that Charles sent out or Dolores sent out or somebody sent out. Um, But uh, this week I had my appointment on Tuesday. And um, you'll notice I'm still wearing the brace, obviously. The reason why I'm still wearing the brace is because uh, he said, and the email didn't say this because I didn't share this part, but he said that I'm about 60% or so healed. uh, The bones, that is. Um, we really didn't talk about the concussion at this point because there's nothing I can do about it. It's just the process is the process, you know. Um, but uh, with regard to the, to the healing in the bone, it is about 60%. It's because of the gap. That's why it's not healing any faster than that. And he told me that at this point in time, they're not sure if the hard bone, you've heard me talk about the hard bone and soft bone before. At this point, they're not sure if the hard bone will ever heal. Um, he said it may, it may not. But he said the soft bone, it looks like it's going to completely heal. When he said 60%, he's talking 60% of the soft bone is healed. And he's confident, completely confident that the, heart, the rest of the soft bone will heal. Um, and I asked him if, um, if the hard bone never does. He said it may, but it may take years too. Um, but he said, I asked him if the hard bone never heals, but the soft bone completely heals, what does that mean for me going forward? He said, he said, that, that I would present to you is basically that you'll be fine because if, if the whole soft bone heals, um, it is structurally sound enough, you'll be fine. He said, uh, and I asked, I said, how rare is this, is this bone that got broken to be broken? He said, um, yeah, Steve, that's really rare. We about never see that. 
He said, you must have gone straight up and straight down right into the asphalt. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, he said, yeah, it's really, really rare to see that. He said, but, but he thinks that the soft bone growing by itself, ultimately, if it completely heals, he thinks it will, it'll be fine. I asked him about the pain that I'm still experiencing. He said the reason why the pain is still there is because in the, in the area where the break is, there's no real large um, nerves. There's just all sorts of little microscopic nerves. That's all there is. And he said, so because you're about 60% or so healed, they're still shifting in the bone. And when there's a little micro shifting in the bone, those micro nerves pick up on it. And when they pick up on it, they just send out massive signals of pain. And that's what you're picking up. He says, as it continues to heal, that should continue to degrade and degrade and degrade until eventually that pain is gone. He said, if it doesn't, there is a surgery they can do. They go in and just burn all those and kill them all if necessary, if it, like if it's not going away. He said, you can't do that pretty much anywhere else but this spot. He said, we can and just burn them all uh, microscopically. He said, um, you know, anywhere else down the spine, he said, you can't do that because the nerves are too big and they, they access too much and you just can't destroy a bunch of nerves. But these microscopic nerves, you can, if they're debilitating, we can certainly, we can certainly kill those if we have to. But we don't want to if we don't have to. So he said, we're going to let it go and just see if it continues to heal. So that's where we stand. So I asked him how much longer. He said, well, let's make an appointment in three months. I said, does that mean I got to wear the brace for three more months? He said, yep. <laughs> so he is allowing me to take it off more and more occasionally when I'm not doing anything. <coughs> um, but yeah, to exercise the neck muscles because they're atrophying, obviously. And so to exercise the, the neck muscles, he said, but and it's okay to move your neck some, but when you experience even the slightest twinge of pain, bring it back. Don't do that. And because uh, you don't want to push it through the pain. This is one of those things that you want to stretch the muscles and work the muscles, but you don't want to cause the pain to happen. So that's where we're at. So we'll see how it goes. Just figured I'd give you a little bit bigger of an update than, than what uh, was sent out this week. <coughs> um, so that's where we're at. But more importantly, we are in Acts chapter 14 this morning. We're in Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verse 19 through 23 this morning. Short passage, um, which is a passage that many of us probably already know the basic nuts and bolts on. If I could just present the passage to you briefly, it would be this way. There's a lot more here than meets the eye. Now, you could say that for pretty much any passage, but I think this passage is, is, is special in that way. There is a lot more here uh, and significant Something, one thing especially that's really significant and initially meets the eye. Before we get started, though, let's have a word of prayer and then we can look at the text. Lord, help us again this morning as we open up your scriptures, as we are reminded of your love as we've been singing about this morning and your mercy, your graciousness towards us, that you would redeem us, that you would save us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to have cold and hard hearts with regard to that, but that our hearts will be inflamed by the truth of your love and mercy and grace. Because we today certainly don't deserve this. If we were even just to do a brief perusal over our week, this last week, we know that we have spent a whole lot more time in rebellion than worship. And yet, even though we are unfaithful, you are faithful. And so, Lord, I pray that even that will inflame our hearts for love for you. Draw us close. In your name I pray. Amen. 
So starting in verse 19, we are continuing the story of Paul's first missionary journey. We know that he was, he's at Lystra, and he's been preaching. You remember last week, he preached, and how many people seemed to believe in the previous, in the previous uh, uh, section? One. One person seemed to believe. It was the lame guy, right? It was the lame guy that we see in verse 8 uh, and 9. Everybody else was enthralled, weren't they? They were enthralled. They were enthralled so much that they wanted to do what? They wanted to worship Him and sacrifice to Him, right? Because they thought that He and Barnabas were Greek gods, right? They were deity. They rebuked Him. I'm sorry, the two rebuked all of them, and yet the Bible says were barely able to restrain them from worshiping Him, right? Which brings us to verse 19. Let me read 19-23, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. There's a lot here in this text, and we're going to try to be as brief as possible because I, I'm not supposed to be preaching too awfully long. You'll notice that he's preaching, he and Barnabas, primarily Paul is preaching there in Lystra. The people, as we just said, are for the most part, except for one seemingly, are doing what? They're worshiping or attempting to worship Paul and Barnabas. They're absolutely enthralled with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 19, but Jews came from, if I may put it this way, the previous cities Paul had been to, right? Paul and Barnabas had been to. These are the Jews that created all sorts of ruckus in the previous cities. And in one case, Iconium, they tried to get him stoned there, didn't they? And they left quickly. They came to Lystra, And having persuaded the crowd, you'll notice verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. You'll notice first of all in the brief reading of verse 19 that Barnabas wasn't stoned, right? But Paul was. Why would Paul be and not Barnabas be? Well, the evidence is probably that based upon the idea that who's doing all the preaching? Paul is. He's the front and center. He's the one doing all the proclaiming. And so that's why they drug him out um, they stoned him and drug him out. But a couple other things that are really interesting about verse 19. You'll notice, first of all, how quickly people turned on Paul and Barnabas. Don't you? Notice how quickly they turned? Sound familiar? Who else does it sound like? Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting how quickly they turned on Christ and how quickly they turned on Paul and Barnabas. Like, They're gods. No, we're not. Yes, you are. We're going to sacrifice to you. No, we're not. Stop it. We're men just like you. And then somebody comes in and starts working on them, right? 
working on them, trying to convince them that they are worth nothing, right? And they're evil. And they're trying to corrupt them. And we think immediately of Christ. And rightfully so. But could I just submit to you this scenario, if I may just stop on this for a second, I'm just going to say this for a second and move off. This scenario is not at all unusual. And I just want to present this to you as strongly as I possibly can. All through history, people have had a demonstration of an embracing of Christianity. I think it's important that we understand this. All through biblically recorded history we have it. In the Old Testament, they're embracing the Old Testament Judaistic religion that God presented to the people. They see the embracing it, but then what happens when any one of the prophets stand up and proclaim the truth? They want to kill them. And most times, what did Stephen say? He said, which ones of the prophets didn't you kill? Right? They didn't just want to kill them. They did kill them. And then other godly people in the Old Testament got ostracized, didn't they? It happened over and over and over again. In the New Testament era, Jesus and then the apostles, it happened over and over and over again, didn't it? Every single one of them. And you know what happened since the closing of the canon that we know as the Bible? The same thing. Now I want to present it as clearly and get it as concisely as possible. Here's what happens. People hear the Word of God proclaimed and they embrace it seemingly. I want to put that in there. Seemingly. And then what happens all through recorded history? Eventually, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to what? To repent and believe and die, right? That's what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is always calling to, isn't it? Repent and believe and die. Die to self. Die to the things of this world. And on and on, right? Isn't that what it is? I mean, that's the theme, isn't it? Let me ask you a quick question, if I may. Is that call comfortable? As believers, is it comfortable? No. And you know what? All through history, you know what has been circling the church all the time? And most times, not just circling the church, but coming inside the church? You know what's happening all the time? There's people coming from Iconium and Antioch. who are saying that's not true. What that person or those people are saying are not true and not real. Now sometimes what happens is they're right. What the person saying isn't real, right? It's not true. That happens regularly too. There are people who come into church and say, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's not what the scriptures say. And they're right. Correct? I mean, if I go to Joel Olstein Church, I'm just using, just using this as an example, I'm going to say, wait, stop! That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. I better be saying that, shouldn't I? But what's also happening 
is there are people coming into churches that are faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And they're saying that's not true. And they're corrupting people. And sometimes pastors or teachers lose their jobs. Other times people just leave. People flee and they go where? Biblically speaking, they flee and they go where? Think of a passage Paul wrote late. Yes, they go to places that will tickle their itching ears. And that's what happens over and over and over again. Don't be surprised. We should not be surprised by that. We have a biblical re biblically recorded history of that, right? And we've got a church history that records it everywhere, do we not? It's everywhere. We find this happening here in verse 19. The followers, supposedly, of God come into Antioch and Iconium, or I mean from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds in Lystra, it's interesting, how much did they persuade the crowds? This is intriguing. How much did they persuade the crowds? Now, it's really easy to say, well, they stoned Paul, right? But it's more than that. Now, you may not notice this at first, but the text reverses the natural order of things in the ancient Near East. Even to this day, stoning of people would not take place in the city. Read the text carefully. They stoned Paul, and then what? Drug him out of the city. They were so inflamed against the message Paul was proclaiming, they couldn't even wait to get him out of the city. And they stoned him. And upon stoning him, they drug him out. That's what it says in verse 19. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Order is important there. And then it closes in verse 19 by saying, supposing he was dead. It's an interesting way to, to spin the words. I want you to put yourself in a position of Paul. I'm sorry, not of Paul, of the stoners. The ones throwing stones. I want to put that as clear, carefully as possible. The ones throwing stones, they're upset. They're angry. They're so angry and full of hate that they are picking up stones and throwing them, hurling them at him. Do you really think that they would stop before he was actually dead? Of course not. Some people have argued all through history that, uh, in, in church history, anyway, that, well, he wasn't really dead. They just didn't really check him really well. Really? Serious? That doesn't make a lick of sense. Supposing he was dead is not because he wasn't. It's because they just they checked him and said, he's dead. Let's take him out. Why would they check him and say that he's dead? Because he was. It's just that something miraculous happened. A lot of people have argued all through church history that this was a naturalistic thing. They just thought he was dead because they were blinded by their hate. And you're going to see in a second that's just not the case. I believe, I'm absolutely convinced that Paul was actually dead in this case. And after being stoned to death, they drug him out of the city supposing he's dead. Verse 20, 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And, and, and we'll stop there. But again, but when the disciples gathered about him, and by the way, when it says in verse 20, they gathered around him, you know why they're gathering around him? Because they're grieving. That's why they're gathering around him. Their friend, the one they loved, has been pummeled beyond recognition. He's been beaten literally into a pulp by rocks. They're standing around him. Notice it doesn't say they were praying. They're just gathered around him. They gathered about him. When they gathered there, he what? He rose up. By the way, rose up is always a miraculous term in the Scriptures. You do have the statements about people rising up when, when God says, rise up and walk, and he rose up. But oftentimes it's also used of things like Lazarus and Jesus. So the idea of rising up is, and by the way, it's also a term of at the end in, in, when, we, when we come out, as dead people come out of the grave too, by the way. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and notice, he did what? He entered the city. Now, it's really important we get this. We, if, if anybody says this is a naturalistic thing, I want, I, just put your thinking caps on for a second. Here Charles is, and we're all gathered around him, and we're hurling rocks at him. Until from all intents and purposes, even if we're really bad at it, and we can't tell if he's dead, we don't know about pulses. We don't know about breath. He looks dead, right? He looks, not to quote Princess Bride, not mostly dead. He looks dead. So we do what next? We take this thing that looks like a dead corpse, we drag him out of the city, which means we, it's not like I'm dragging him down an asphalt road. Okay, We're dragging him over cobble, rough cobblestones, through rocks, into boulders, we don't care. Right? We hate him. He's dead. And we drag him probably about a mile or better. You can imagine what that would do to a body. Can't you? Drag him about a mile or more. And then we leave him there. And then his disciples come out. You can assume that, 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 that Charles' disciples come out after everybody leaves. So he's been laying out there for a while. And finally his disciples come around. They stand around. He gets up. Now do you think, naturalistically speaking, do you think Charles would have the ability to walk back into the city? They're not throwing pebbles at him. They're throwing rocks at him. This is supernatural. Now, I believe he was dead. And he gets up. And not only is he, is he alive, but he's healed. And he walks back into the city. Now, it is important that we ask ourselves a really big question. Why did he walk back into the city? I think in one hand, it's obvious condemnation, right? He walks back into the city mocking those people, right? Ridiculing them. Humiliating them and perhaps 
creating terror. Does that make sense? But also it's what? It's demonstrating the miracle that the truth of the message is really the truth, what he was preaching. Now, it gets really interesting from here, so we've got to hurry. It says next, he rose up, entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby, which means clearly he's healed, right? He goes on a journey of about 30 miles the next day. That's not going to happen for somebody who got pummeled. So he goes to Derby. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to the city, to that city, and had made many disciples, they did what? They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Wow. First of all, again, we're going to be real brief on verse 21. They preached the gospel to that city, Derby. It's not a tiny little town. It's not a little dinky Chester Springs. It's a good-sized town. They preached there, and many people repented and believed. You get that, right? But notice also, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many, what? Disciples. And the implication about disciples is not just people who repented and believed, but He taught them. The implication of the text is that He's there for a little while. How long, we don't know. But let's just say for sake of argument, He's there for two months. Maybe three months. I don't know. Maybe less. I suspect it's probably much, not much more than that. But at least a few weeks, but probably at least a month. He does what? He returns to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Now here's where it gets incredibly interesting. Because in verse 22 it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must be saved. This is really an intriguing statement. And this is where we start getting into the, there's a whole lot here, more, or enter the kingdom of God. Sorry, I quoted wrong. Um, this is where it gets a lot more intriguing than, than we first get in the beginning. What did we say last week? We have evidence in last week's message there was how many saved? One. One repented and believed. And they leave, and we know that Paul and Barnabas are together, but there's most likely others traveling with them, because usually there were. So most likely there's others traveling with them, and most likely in the statement about uh, the, the, in verse 20 about the disciples gathered about him, those people, when he's dead there after being stoned, are most likely those who are traveling with him. Okay? The disciples being mentioned in verse 22 are radically different. Not the same group of people. In verse 22, when it says strengthen the souls of the disciples, he's talking about the disciples in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Wait a second. We said there looks like there's only one who repented and believed in, in, in Lystra. And yet... When they return a month, two months, three months later, there are disciples, plural. Correct? That makes sense? And it should cause us to stop and wonder where did those disciples come from? Shouldn't it? Where did those disciples come from? Plural. In Lystra. Antioch, we knew there were, there were plurals. Iconium, we knew there were plurals. But Lystra... 
There's only one. Where'd that plural come from? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Isn't it? It came from where? The one. The one who did what? Get the full picture. The one who was lame and could not walk now can walk because he believed, right? Right after he believed and could walk, the people started worshiping the two, Paul and Barnabas. They rebuked him. Right after that, the Jews came, corrupted the entire crowd. The entire crowd drug him out and had him, or killed him and drug him out. I suspect one of the disciples that were standing around was, guess who? The previously lame guy, right? He probably walked with Paul and Barnabas and the other disciples back into the city. Correct? Just want you to get the picture. So Paul, Barnabas, the disciples traveling with Paul and Barnabas and the lame guy come walking back into the city. And the people of the city, what? They see it. Paul stays in the city overnight with Barnabas and the rest of his disciples that are following with him. The next day, he gets up with his disciples and leaves this new believer. Right? This brand new believer who knows almost nothing. And there is no Jewish synagogue in town. He leaves him there. And he goes off to Derby. And a month or two later, he comes back. And there are what? There are disciples in Lystra. Why? Because when God transforms somebody, something happens. Do you hear that? Do you see it? When God transforms somebody, when God saves somebody, something happens in that person's life. And that person responds by what? Loving the one that first loved them. And he begins to proclaim the truth. Doesn't he? He begins to proclaim the truth. And in proclaiming the truth, what begins to happen? The Spirit begins to come on others who were what? People who were throwing rocks and who were angry. And previously to that, were worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Who were dragging Paul out of the city. And now some of them are being saved. Because the Lord is using the mouth of this previously lame guy. Isn't that interesting? Can I just ask you a quick question before we jump beyond this? We're not going to jump beyond it. We're going to camp on it a little bit longer. Can I ask you a quick question? Does that sound like Christianity that you know today? I'm just asking a question. Does that, like, does that sound like Christianity as we know it today? Does that sound, I mean, does it even have a hollow ring? Or does Christianity today have a hollow ring even of that? Does it? This is why I talked about in the beginning about how people think 
and act, yeah, this is really good. But when they hear the true gospel, suddenly it's really offensive. Right? It's offensive. I don't know about you, but when I look at Christianity, that's not, this is not what I see. This is not what I hear. I mean, even to the point of, if I may lay it out for you, here's what I hear today. Well, you know, how could you expect anybody to be mature in Christ if nobody's ever discipled them? Hello? Right? This guy's all alone. As far as we can tell. Right? And what happens to him? He's transformed as he's drawn to Jesus. It goes on. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to what? This sounds familiar, right? To encourage, to be strengthened and to continue in the faith, right? To continue in the faith. Does that sound familiar? Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the faith. Same, same message, right? What is he saying? Continue in the faith means what? I mean, I'm just going to pack it for one second. It means continue in the Word of God. Continue feasting on the Lord. Feasting on the Word. Learning and filling and inculcating your life with the Word of God. Drinking deeply at the fountain of living water. Eating of the bread of life. Fellowshipping with the Lord. On and on and on. Continue in the faith. That's exactly what he's saying for them to do. Interestingly enough, he's not saying, hey, listen, what you've got to do is you've got to go find a mentor. And that, that's not what he's saying, is he? He's not saying, hey, what you've got to do is, is, is you've just got to have someone disciple you. <laughs> that's what you've got to do. No, he's just continue in the faith. That's what he says. Why does he say that? Well, because, my goodness, the only mentor we really need the only disciple we, disciple we really need is who? The Holy Spirit. He's been given to us, hasn't He? My goodness. And notice He goes on and says, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, we can't get off that one without saying something about it, right? What do we do today? We pray for the persecuted church that the persecution would Stop. What do we do? We complain about when there's any type of persecution at all. For example, I hear people all over the place this week saying, pray for John MacArthur and Grace Community Church out in California that the persecution would stop that's coming upon them. I don't know if you've heard what's happening to them, but um, California has said no, no church services, even home services, nothing. And John MacArthur wrote a letter to, to the governor and said, you have no authority here. You have no authority here. You're trespassing. We will meet. And then the mayor of the city that they're in said, we're going to shut off our utilities last week. And he said, well, do what you got to do. We're still going to meet. And they said, well, you're going to be arrested if you try to meet. Well, you got to do what you got to do, but we're going to meet. Well, last Sunday they met, and nothing happened. They didn't shut off the power or anything, but the threats are even stronger for today. And what most Christians are saying is, man, we've got to pray for John MacArthur and, and Grace Community Church that there's no persecution, they're able to worship freely. And I look at that and say, no! No, no, no! We need to be praying for what? 
strength to endure, strength to, to not just survive, but to thrive for God's glory. Strength to shine the light brightly in the midst of even small persecution like what they're getting. Just So far, just threats. What does he say? Paul says to this small band of believers in Lystra, what? Hear the words. Words are important. Through what? Much or many tribulations. Through much or many tribulations. And in my translation, the next two words are we must. What does King James say, Jim? We must. Yeah, we must. It's not you may. It's not possibly. It's not praise the Lord for the last 200 plus years in America. We haven't. He says we must. The entryway into the kingdom of God, according to the Scriptures, is it has to be through much, much persecution. Not occasional little teeny persecution. It must be through many tribulations. Or there's no entry into the kingdom. That's what it says. Continue in the faith because you're going to need the faith because if you're going to get in the kingdom of God, there's only one way in. Much persecution. Much tribulation. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders, whoo, what was that? <laughs> Back the horses up. Just like an aside, all he says is, all Luke records is, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. <laughs> Excuse me? It's only been a couple months since the crippled guy got saved. At best. Only a couple months. And then even shorter time for others in the, in the, in the town that have gotten saved, right? And they do what? They find elder material there? They find elder material there? Notice, they found elders, they appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. Words mean something. Which means in this tiny little church, we don't know the size, but in this tiny little church in Lystra, they found multiple elders. That's intriguing. That's stunning. Today in the church, we don't expect to find elders unless they've been saved for 20 years or more and unless they've gone to college and seminary. Now, I wonder where that is in here. That's kind of intriguing, isn't it? The it's, it's an aside. They went there and they pointed elders. They didn't, they didn't come in and say, well, there's really nobody that qualifies as elders here, but we've got to appoint some, so we better appoint them. They looked at the people and they appointed elders. Why? Because there were elder type of people there. How could there possibly be elder type of people there in a couple months? Now, obviously, that's the spirit work, right? But could I submit to you you know what the Spirit used? Much 
What do you think? Tribulations. It both weeds and matures. And so in a few months, there are elders, plural, in these little teeny cities. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That is, they, with prayer and fasting, they committed these elders to the Lord whom they believed to serve and lead well. Now, there's things I'd love to say about the, the um, prayer and fasting there, but I'll leave that aside. You can think about that yourself at this point. I want to say something else that's really intriguing, and I think it's very important. I would argue... And we're going to close on this. I would argue that if you study the scriptures carefully at all, you can know who this crippled guy is. A lot of these crippled people in scriptures are healed. You can't know. I would submit to you, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. It may not be, but I think I know who this crippled guy is. I think I know. If you study the scriptures... I think you will come away, agree with me, and say this person is most likely the person we know of as Timothy. I think this is Timothy. Acts 16, starting in verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there. Interesting, this is two chapters later. Actually, one chapter in between. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Interesting, isn't it? I would submit to you that it's highly likely, especially in the juxtaposition 14 to 16, it's highly likely that this guy who was crippled and then healed by Paul, healed by the Lord, is most likely Timothy. A man who God used amazingly. Didn't he? It, be, it makes 2 Timothy 3 look even more stunning, doesn't it? Because you remember, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he said, Timothy, I want you to know in the last days, difficult times will come. <laughs> Timothy probably read that and said, uh, last days, we thought there's something else coming? My goodness. And then he realizes that Paul's talking about the church. And what Paul, in effect, was saying is what you saw in Lystra when you first got saved that's going to be in the church. And you find Paul, you find Timothy, once again, under persecution, later in his life. But now the persecution is not just outside the church coming in, but the persecution is also inside the church as well. Timothy. So I just want to challenge us as we close is this the Christianity you and I believe in? Real important question. Is this the Christianity we understand? Is this the worship of Christ that you recognize and agree with that this is what you're called to? 
is Christ worthy of this? Or is your life more worthy of something else? Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is easy to read a text like this and just kind of breeze over it because it seems more of an aside and maybe even a little humorous as Paul gets up and walks into the city. But what's on display here is true Christianity. In a very, very concise way, you have put on display, this is what true Christianity is. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help each one of us to be challenged by your Spirit. Am I someone who is merely looking for itching uh, my ears to be tickled? Or am I someone who is like this person that I think is probably Timothy? And of course, it's not that we need to try to be like Timothy, but is the Spirit at work in my life or isn't he? Am I someone who, because the Spirit is moving in me, am I someone willing to suffer and die? Am I willing to recognize and embrace the idea that I must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God? Is the Spirit at work in me and is the Spirit at work in all of us that we are becoming mature, Believers, lovers of God, lovers of Jesus, transform us, change us, open our eyes to see. In your name I pray, amen. As we move to communion, I would just challenge all of us to wrestle with what we looked at in this text, because this text is challenging, isn't it? It's challenging. It's laying out in real terms what Christianity is to look like, to be about. And so I, I ask us to examine ourselves because the scriptures ask us.